If you don't protect yourself, what we're looking at is the complete collapse, potentially the complete collapse of the fiat currency system and everything that depends on it. They now have to keep printing or we crash. We've got this ticking time bomb. Talking gold with the one and only Andrew McGuire. Welcome to Live from the Vault. Welcome to Live from the Vault. My name is Shane Moran, and I'll be your host for this episode. And yes, you guessed it. I'm no longer in Costa Rica. I spent the whole month of January out of the vault into Costa Rica. But now I am in Dhaka, Bangladesh. As you can see, you might hear some noise in the background, but that's just the beautiful music and orchestra of Bangladesh in the background. Uh, but with it, with that, you know, I just want to just mention here, from the entire Live from the Vault team worldwide, we really want to thank you for your continued support. And as you can imagine, you know, this community just keeps on growing and growing and growing thanks to you, the Live from the Vault community. And, and the community is all over the world now. It's just incredible. And there's a lot to talk about during these historic times. And fear not, because we have the one and only Andrew McGuire, and he's in the house and he'll be talking gold. You're not going to want to miss this. Why is that? Because... It's going to be an amazing episode. I want you to fasten your seatbelt. You know, Life in the Vault gives you access to information and updates that you just can't get anywhere else. And this episode will be no exception. With that, let's head over to the UK and Talking Gold with the one and only Andrew McGuire. Now, Andrew, let's start off by connecting all the dots here between what you reported in our last two episodes you know, our la two weeks ago, our last episode just two weeks ago, and the extreme volatility that we're evidencing right now. Yeah, Shane, that's great. Uh, let's get that done. Um, just to say, I'm going to be bringing our very good friend, Alistair McLeod, on uh, a bit later on in the show here. Um, but uh, because we, we have we always have so much requests for market update, let's get the market update done, and then we'll bring our good friend Alistair in. So, Shane, to answer your question, yeah, let's look at this recent extremely volatile action. I mean, what caused it and how it's going to get resolved? That, that's the issue we're going to kind of look at here. And we'll begin by looking at the elephant in the room. These are the big footprints, the cartel-driven, counterintuitive, paper-centric action that's really evidenced a rinse of the paper element. This is important the paper element of the recent gold price rally that drove gold to a 10 months highs. Now, but please be aware, we're focusing on the paper element here. And par for the course, look, we always expect obligatory algo-driven paper market volatility into major news events, which we've had, which were the, like Fed events, non-farm payrolls last Friday. Look, it's really easy to take advantage of COMEX-centric Commodity Trading Advisors, that's the CTAs, uh, or to put another way, the speculators. It's easy to take advantage of these non-delivery guys into these algo-driven events, which, which is really what we're focusing on here. Now, as it happened, FOMC exposed a boxed-in, very much more dovish power than was expected, triggering a, a really strong gold rally. And that drove gold into those 10-month highs very next morning into very strong Asian physical buying. Now, as a reminder, these CTAs are essentially the speculators managing money for clients and themselves. 
and are blinkered, completely blinkered to real supply demand fundamentals. They exist in this silo of the COMEX, the casino. However, post FOMC, this race into safe haven uh, paper and physical gold broke out some really important resistance levels, which began triggering a lot. What There was previously some very bearish bets, tricked in bets by the CTAs, who'd put short stops above the market to protect themselves in case the price rose. And as is always the case, when this herd is being run from pillar to post by the house, this short covering to buy back these bearish bets reverse into very large leverage CTA paper-centric buying. Now, it's this paper element of the buying that set, that set everything up for a rinse. And as we, and as we have time and time again pointed out, if it was not for this heavily margined group of COMEX centric paper traders who have no mandate to ever take delivery, the cartel would have no fuel to game these ranges. And that's what part of the education process here that we're trying to bring to people. Don't play this game unless you are a professional. It's always the case. It was the sudden influx of naked short CTAs that provided the cell ignition fuel for the cartel. Now, the scope of which, this is important, is limited to what volume of naked longs or shorts, for that matter, can be sucked into the COMEX pit manager's tables for the house to bet against, with the objective of the house rigging prices back into line with these deeply underwater house bets against gold and silver breaking out to the upside. They were caught out. It was breaking out. Now, paper gold is the only tool left in the cartel's toolbox. And with the physical markets increasingly migrating outside of the LBMA house ring fence, they are scrambling to exit underwater derivative bets placed under this, under gold. They're going to have to do this in 2023. The house had not factored the central bank race into unleveraged physical gold, which had wrong footed their bearish paper gold bets at the commencement of 2023. Now, we've been witnessing a defensive action just now since since uh, this is what this volatility is about, which has largely cleaned out and backfilled the froth element of a strong move into physical gold and silver. Now, these are rigged markets and officials and their agent market making insiders are always in the loop of the bulk of the upcoming non-found payrolls data. Powell denies that we get that we get the data beforehand or much beforehand. They do get the bulk of the, uh, enough to sufficiently enable them to set up the insiders who are agent banks for the, for, for the uh, officials there's enough information for them to set up um, the cell ignition point, knowing that this was going to be a beat in this case. And they know the exact margin pain points. I mean, these the CTAs are the people that borrow this from them. Their, finan their financing is done by the market makers and they borrow it. So they know exactly where their pain points are, where they, where they will put their stops. And, and, and so really what happened was the, as soon as, as soon as we saw, uh, this enough froth to be rinsed, they literally pulled the bids with their market makers, pulled the bids, then shorted gold and silver futures in sufficient size to trigger a sell ignition. We've seen it time and time again. 
Now, while we anticipated this obligatory algo gaming into non-farm perils, the full gap closes really exceeded initial pres uh, expectations in the process, actually driving April gold into deep, actionable backwardation to spot, meaning that it was that, that you could clearly see that the selling pressure was 100% COMEX centric because this is an actionable trade, especially with Basel III uh, conditions be, uh, being being valid, you know, in place. And as far as the massive headline non-farm payroll beat was concerned, it was undoubtedly politically motivated with because Biden and Harris they were already in the know of the upcoming known beat. They were already scheduled to speak after the release. They only do that when there's when there's something to, to, to crow about. Something they wouldn't have done if it had been a bad headline number. And then Bloomberg, they came out, I mean, and, and literally they said, basically, this number seems too good to be true. That's because it's too good to be true. This is this is their their their, their interpretation of it. Talking about seasonal factors, uh, past you know, and revision stop to, uh, to data, um, and that, yes, the labour market is tight, but they were just also assessing that the Fed wouldn't place too much weight on the headline jobs numbers. Of course, the algos did; they game it. However, pre-programmed insider run high-frequency trading bots managed to rinse out every single fresh non-delivery CTA long in the April Gold Futures contract all the way back to the 11th of January levels. Now, while the, in the extremely rigged leveraged silver market, I mean, really, we saw a far, far bigger rinse. I mean, if you think about it, just on non-farm payrolls day alone last Friday, a ludicrous and totally implausible 26,500 tonnes of paper supply, close to 85% of all 2022 global silver supply, had changed hands just after non-farm payrolls into the close. Now, GC, obviously, GC, Gold Futures, uh, fared a lot better. Uh, they managed to successfully rinse out, rinse out the CTA longs added from the 11th of January. And while the naked short momentums, then the momentum traders come in and they just now, these are naked short. They just are chasing the momentum down. They have the bit between their teeth and have clearly been attempting to troll round numbers. They did 1900. Now they, they, they're targeting 1850. That's what they're doing. Uh, but insiders exposed to the deliverability of net stable funding compliance spot gold are reported, obviously, to be one to one long, long against these blinkered sellers. Really, it's restricted to how much they can suck in. All right, Andrew, thanks for that update uh, about gold. And, and, you know, here I am in Bangladesh and, you know, gold is everywhere. Women wear it all over the place. I just went to a pre-wedding and there's gold everywhere. And apparently men have it hidden in all places. But let's talk about my beloved silver. You know, it's been hit hard now. And uh, what are you seeing from a wholesale market perspective with silver? Yeah, great question, Shane. And that's what, what really we need to answer. I'm really glad you brought it up. Um, look, silver is not NSFR compliant, unlike gold. So in order to track the insider's footprints pitched against the speculators, um, to best assess what to expect, we need to look at the casino's option structures, 
which really gives us a good view into the insider's footprints. Now, these sweet spots are usually quite accurate. So we've got March uh, futures contract, which is the current contract, going into options expiry and rollover in delivery in two weeks on the 23rd of February. And this is the first delivery contract of 2023. Now, this is going to be a large delivery, hence the outrageous capping directly related to insider bets against silver closing above $24. Now, the paper bets are all interconnected with a very large visible OCC bets, which is the the reported the, the bets reported on the Office of the Comptroller report, which is uh, published quarterly, which directly relate to the large wrong-footed SLV. Yes, yes, this is the illusionary world of the ETFs we highlighted in our video last week. So, yes, these are all interconnected. So it's much larger than people realize. Now, Silver Futures has suffered a much more aggressive chart painting attack, which is what it is, which has left wholesalers largely actually sitting on the sidelines, waiting for options expiry gaming to offer better prices. So really, that's a bit confusing because we're seeing the likes of, say, Standard Chartered not taking wholesale supply, not taking the refiner supply. They're waiting and deliberately waiting in, in the hope that the pricing will get better. However, liquidity providers on the other side of the coin are accessing this really, this action should begin to fade into very strong returning Indian spot silver demand. So these are spot, because it's not NSFR compliant, when you buy the spot price at the fix, then you lock that price in, then you can then uh, demand physical delivery at a later stage. So you're not driving up the price, but you're locking in the price. And then so, and this is going to, because they need to accommodate extremely strong physical and retail demand. It's continuing. And for the record, just to, just to illustrate, India consumed almost all of all global demand of silver demand in, in 2022. And in 2023, uh, it, it's, it's estimated to be uh, sufficient to create a supply deficit. Ultimately, this is going to really inst reignite global wholesale physical demand. So, you know, they, they consumed pretty much 85% of everything that was produced last year alone. Now, it's clear the short sellers are using any thin conditions, liquidity conditions, to take out each day's prior low by a couple of ticks. You've noticed that each time you, you look, it's just a couple of ticks lower. However, Importantly, this is not generating any further large sell ignition, which actually indicates there are zero specs left to be rinsed and that all the selling is momentum based, naked short with insiders long against them. So, yes, it, we may see more attacks, but this is building up a huge long position for the insiders in the house. Now, the LBMA CME cartel are wrong footed in the bigger picture, and given physical settlements are increasingly being squared outside of the LBMA CME siloed spot ring fence, uh, and obviously if they're using the diluted spot fix to benchmark, and then the, we've talked about exchange for physicals and how that flows into the over-the-counter markets, and they're also uh, really, uh, we're actually seeing some forced deliveries at the back doors of the COMEX. Now, this has actually slowed down a bit because everyone's waiting for a better price. Now, the cartel 
is and this is a kind of a gaslighting kind of situation. Now, the cartel is now desperate to short cover naked short silver bets, but are limited to how much uh, CTA and momentum shorts uh, sellers uh, wrong footing they can generate. Now, the option structure just indicates insiders have been short covering. However, the bets against 24 are still embedded. So be aware of that. Now, we're tracking the changing option structure, which still indicates a sweet spot of $23.80 at this time. So really, silver is coiling for a large move higher is what we're saying. Hey, Andrew, thanks a lot for that short term update. Can you also do the same? Maybe give us a short term estimate for what's happening in the gold market here. Yeah, the selling is gold futures uh, generated. Obviously, we've just indicated what, how we know we can discern that. And, and it's been undoubtedly been a coordinated uh, US centric official attempt, PSYOPs operation, trying to really gloss over the fact that the physical gold market is exiting the LBMA CME ring fence into competing unfriendly as well as increasingly incentivized Western central bank and sovereign buying. The CTAs don't get this. The immediate option sweet spot is evidencing a scramble to exit the previously strong resistance bets against 1900, which we moved into the beginning of the year with. These have that's now folded uh, with the current sweet spot migrating higher to something like 1915, which is an extremely compressed price considering it's paper generated. However, there's increasing support growing into the 1940s and the 1950 resistance is starting to look a little magnetic. Now, very short term, this option structure provides an insight into the paper market footprints where we're evidencing the rinsing of highly leveraged non-delivery futures contracts into a very strong unleveraged central bank demand physical market. And to better assess goals 2023 prospects, we really have to look at the bigger picture, don't we, Shane? Yes, Andrew, thanks for that update. And, and can you also give us an update on the progress of what you call the gold commoditization process right now? Yeah, Shane, and let's look at that. That really takes us on to the larger picture, namely the utilization of physical gold as a de-dollarizing currency war missile. Now, we see the current US-centric PSYOPs operation as a really a feeble attempt to counter this de-dollarizing mandate instigated by Russia at the commencement of 2020 through trading. We did a lot of research on that and, and nothing's changed on that. But the Fed is on its own here. And that seemed apparent as every other central bank, including the Bank of International Settlements, is long gold. Now, fighting global central bank and institutional safe haven physical demand with paper gold is as ill thought through as the now very evident backfiring of Western sanctioned packages, of which it is one, clearly. And there's little doubt that following Russia throwing its glove in the ring, weaponizing physical gold against the dollar at the open of New Year trading, catching all of these guys out. Officials were caught flat-footed, but will be now a little bit reluctant to dig a deeper hole. Now, with the US-centric officials, they've had some limited success. Uh, they had some limited success in psyopsing the market down. That was in August 2020, again in March 2021, when we were in the 2000s. And that was after Russia employed physical gold, the physical gold trade to bolster its currency. And it was just a fight back of paper gold. By the time the sanction linked PSYOPs operation concluded in November 2022, 
and we, we talked about it at the time, global central banks had bought the most gold since Nixon closed the gold window 50 years ago. I mean, who the hell wants to be short here? This is exactly what we predicted would happen when fighting global physical demand with paper gold, the lesson does not go unnoticed and the current feeble US centric attempt to counter a physically driven central bank, central bank race into physical gold to counter that with paper gold medium term, this is going to backfire dramatically. And this French fresh mandate by Russia to create a gold-backed currency to price all commodities will run over paper gold sell attempts. And obviously, the momentums of that, it'll continue until the momentums don't have enough supply to offset physical exposure for the, for the house. Now, bear in mind, unlike the US, every other central bank facing the physical markets, including the BIS, is now long gold. Now, we're going to, my friend Alistair McLeod is, is going to draw, is going to join us in a little while. And he's, he, he, and I want him on because he's also drawing unwanted attention to this currency war with Russia, which single-handedly is capable of destroying the dollar at a far faster pace than anyone has factored in. Alistair, as I say, will join us shortly, but reference is being drawn to Sergei Glasnev's recent article in a Russian newspaper. And he talked about this too, telegraphing the settlement of trade balances between a wide range of members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the, the SCO basically. And it will increasingly incre incorporate physical gold. And considering the ex, the SCO family encompasses something like 3.8 billion members, the scale of the upcoming de-dollarizing velocity is as yet not priced into the dollar. August looks like the formalized date for this attack launch, but we've already seen evidence of got the gold for oil and some commodities as already underway. And we talked about that last time. And given that the physical gold, that physical gold grams are now formalized as the benchmark currency to price a wide range of commodities in the future, including silver, and Shane, that is for you, including silver, from a real supply-demand perspective. Paper-diluted gold in the hands of Fed and Asian banks is grossly undervalued. Almost every single trading bank is now positioned for a Fed-triggered commodity super cycle with expectations of record commodity prices in 2023. There is a consensus it has to be. It's Fed triggered. Into this super cycle, gold and silver are grossly undervalued. And as far as commodities are concerned, silver will outperform with expectations also of record 2023 prices. So really, to sum it up, while the paper market CTIs myopically focuses on, uh, focus on a chart painted, you know, here, you know, these, these charts here are just, I mean... <laughs> They're just constructed to lead them by the note. And they focus on this, this drip fed house diluted supply demand price data is nothing to do with reality. They completely miss that the official reported 1136 tons of physical central bank gold demand into 2022 Basel three NSFR compliant conditions 
that recorded the highest central bank demand since Nixon closed the gold window 50 years ago. Now we know that is what was and continues to re- that what is reported and continues to be reported is just a fraction of real central bank sovereign demand. Much of it is, of course, transacted by third parties, and there's no requirement for them to disclose it. Essentially, the gold dollar conversion window has been reopened, and this increasing physical market liquidity will embolden the ability to exchange fast depreciating dollar for under, dollars for underpriced bullion. Again, we talked about the, the potential for this liquidity in our last episode. And while Fed agent trading banks are short gold for the Fed, it's not the case for these same insiders' house accounts. They're not stupid. Liquidity providers and our well-placed contacts continue to report every single first-tier bank, along with the BIS, are long physical gold for their own accounts. All right. Now, Andrew, that's exciting. What's happening here? Gold and silver is exciting. And I know everyone's also excited about hearing from Alistair McLeod by popular demand. But listen, we've, we've done over 100 uh, Life in the Vault shows. And way back, let's talk about the BIS, because you've been talking about the BIS. You've uncovered this BIS story back in two, you know, 2017 and long before everyone else. And, and I understand that you have a very important bullish update regarding the BIS. Can you can you share it with our viewers now? Yeah. And, and in fact, it's funny enough, I, I was just somebody sent me a copy of the uh, Russian television interview I did with Bart Chilton in 2017, where we actually where he was asking me about gold. And I said, watch out. Basel three is going to change this game. So onto the subject of the BIS, just as predicted, when we commenced 2022 trading, we assessed that it would take a full year for Basel three NSFRs to be completely implemented and that the BIS was going to also square all of their gold liabilities. And right on cue, swaps were squared to zero by the last trading day of, of 2022. And really, Gatter's Robert Lang- Lamborn uh, produced a really good analysis of this, uh, and it can be accessed on uh, of this 12-month unwind of over $500 to zero, and it can be accessed on the GATA website. So GATA is a really powerhouse of information, and you're going to find a lot of resources there. So I really encourage everyone to go there. Now, we, along with our first-tier liquidity providers and the Bullion Bank contacts, were certain that this elephant in the room that was be- being completely hidden out of the casino was going to ultimately force the BIS to square up all of these 500, over 500 tons of leases and swaps by the end of the year of 2022. Now, once we, we once again picked up on this thread directly after, if you remember the March 2020 EFP implosion where we saw $100 spread per ounce spreads between the, the spot market and the futures, it blew up. This is what caused the BIS to implement NSFR compliance because we have a $70 trillion gold derivative market. And if it had collapsed, it would have taken down all the banks. And so really what we're seeing here is the, these physical backing measures were, were fast tracked from 2020 to commence 2022 to the end of 2022. And this is, I mean, this was a Rip Van Winkle limbo. I mean, Lord, what a joke. Uh, that this, this, you know, that, that they were trying to block its implementation. And again, they failed. 
Now, this also telegraphed that the BIS would ultimately have to become NSFR compliant themselves, forcing them to square up and repatriate all these naked short bets laid on the books of the agent LBMA banks, who were privileged to have gold accounts of the Bank of England. So, and just want to say, we also drew public attention to these short covering BIS footprints in when we did our very public facing 16th of the November live from the vault episode. And we subsequently reported that the footprints into the November 22 lows showed that the BIS had utilized this 3rd of November COMEX centric dip, which is like the paper dips we're seeing now, into the spec driven 161830 lows burned in the brain to clear the way for the BIS to square up agent banks liabilities and to accumulate a very strong unencumbered bullion position to bolster their site accounts. It was no surprise to see this play out. Now, the issue here is that during the course of 2022 trading, as these gold derivative bets were repatriated from the agent bullion banks, who clearly had a central bank guarantee against these leased out gold positions, the very fact that the 10 times larger than directly related undeliverable COMEX positions had to be physically backed by these same agent market-making bullion banks, liquidity providers, and all other liquidity providers for that matter, it opened up the Achilles heel uh, for the EFP mechanism becoming physically deliverable. Hey, guys, and that is exactly what we're seeing now. So with that, I'm going to bring on Alistair. Welcome Welcome, welcome. Um, it is so nice to have you. And thank you. It's, a, it's an actual privilege for us here to have you join us again. Everyone asks for you. And um, it's nice that you've been able to spend the time to uh, to join us. And, and I think what I want to draw attention to, because we're looking at, we've done a market update, short time update. We're now looking at the bigger picture. And who better to bring in than yourself? Um, and your tale, what got my attention really was your tale of the Two Worlds article was an absolute masterpiece, my friend. And I really do encourage people to read it, it uh, if they haven't already. Uh, there's just so much to digest. But if we focus really on uh, on, on what is on the front burner, um, you drew attention to Sergei Glazev's recent article, in a Russian newspaper, telegraphing basically settlement of trade between a wide range of members of the uh, SCO. Um, so I think it's a great place to start. Um, Alistair, please share your thoughts, my friend. Yeah, um, it is. I mean, we live in fascinating times. I mean, you know, um, gold bugs like me have been saying, you know, gold is money. I mean, legally it is. And, uh, you know, we should tie currencies back to gold. And then we wouldn't have this situation of everybody's savings being devalued, 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 and so on and so forth. It would also impose some um, uh, discipline on governments. But um, we're not going to do it. It turns out the Russians are going to do it. And this story is fascinating. It really is. Uh, I mean, for some considerable time, we have seen Russia and China assemble between them. Uh, you refer to the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. That, if you like, is the master plan. It started as a was a security based operation uh, back in, I think, in about 2000, 2002, something like that. Because at that time, you may recall that there was a real... Um, sort of jihadist, um, uh, extreme Muslim movement 
going through all those countries in Central Asia and there were big concerns between Russia and China that this would get out of control. So they formed this this union along with the nations, if you like, in that area. And it's expanded and expanded. And it turned from a security organization into a wider economic union. Now, it's a loose union. It's not like the EU where... Um, you know, you're under the thumb of Brussels and Brussels does all the regulations and all the rest of it. No, the way this works is, um, you know, you're part of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. There are other countries which are members. There are other countries which are dialogue partners and there are other countries which are associates. So you've got sort of different categories of membership and they each do their own thing and nobody interferes with anyone else. I mean, we have this situation where you've got China having border clashes with India. Both of them are members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. You know, they've got their own sort of political agendas and nobody interferes with anyone else's. And it used to be like that in this country. If you go back to the time of Lord Liverpool, Castle Ray and so on and so forth, what Britain did was, uh, particularly with Europe, um, it protected its own interests, but it didn't tell other people how to run their countries. It didn't moralize about um, the things we moralize about. You know, we condemn the, you know, the violence against Uyghurs and all the rest of it. No, I mean, this is it. So we really do have two worlds here. And I think it's important to understand that there's a lot of propaganda in the West. There's a lot of propaganda in, in, in Asia as well. So we can't actually rely on government information. We have to if you like, do a bit of digging and uh, use a little bit of intelligence to, to get where we are. Now, really for some considerable time, central to the whole SCO project has been the desire to do away with the dollar. Why? Because the dollar is weaponized, and this was proved uh, a year ago, virtually to this day. Um, and uh, not only that, but... Um, Every transaction that's done through the dollar, unless it's in the euro dollars market, in other words, offshore from America, is settled through a money center bank in New York. So the Americans have the intelligence about all the trade that's going on, you know, whether it's, it's buying copper or whether it's um, selling, you know, widgets from, say, Taiwan to um, Uzbekistan, whatever it might be. They have all the information. This obviously gets up the nose of Russia and China for obvious reasons. And um, so they want to get away from it. Now, the strategy so far has been to just let America make all the mistakes. And we've seen this. Um, they've tried to destabilize Hong Kong back in 2014, you know, with the Occupy Central riots and all the rest of it. And basically what happened was that China just re rode through this. You've had Syria. Uh, which has engaged the, the Russians indirectly. What happened was that uh, the Americans really sort of went in there, not fully because Britain refused to back them. I think this is one of the better things that Cameron did. You know, he actually put it to Parliament and Parliament said no. So, you know, that didn't actually um, deteriorate into a full on Iraq style war. Then you had Afghanistan. Now they pulled out of Afghanistan. Why do they pull out of Afghanistan? Um, it wasn't just a question of chucking money at the thing. But the Americans could see that NATO's resources would probably be needed to, to if you like, in the, in the Ukrainian theater of war. And from Russia's point of view, it saw the Americans on the run the whole time. Um, the whole of the Ukrainian situation has been really about these 
two superpowers. And the one trying to protect its borders and not really caring very much about anything else. I mean, we've had this thing, you know, James Baker back in, uh, you know, the time of Gorbachev saying we will not move one inch eastwards. That was his phrase, one inch. We won't move one inch eastwards. What happened? You know, the Americans then ratted on that. And basically, you know, sort of moved all the all the missiles into Poland and, you know, the Baltic states. So, so you've, you know, Russia doesn't trust the Americans at all. So um, it's been going for some time. Now, this business of just letting the Americans make the mistakes has been fine until we had the Ukraine war, which kicked off. I think it was on the 28th of February last year. So we're coming up to the anniversary of the start of that. Um, and uh, what happened then was that this financial conflict really came out into the open. I mean, not just the military one, but the financial one. Uh, and, uh, you know, I needn't go through the history of what happened, but sanctions and also SWIFT and all the rest of it, basically um, a very, very clear message was sent to every country in the world that if you don't conform to what America wants, then they will make your bank reserves completely worthless because it's all fiat currency. So what do you do? You've got to have gold. That's the first lesson. Um, and uh, the idea that they could sort of ring fence um, and stop Russia selling its oil to its major markets, it just completely backfired. The other thing they underestimated completely was the resilience of the Russian economy. I mean, the Russian economy is a production-based economy. You know, it's not a financial one like ours. I mean, we're used to sort of getting the Chinese to make this and that and all the rest of it. No, Russia makes its own stuff. It's also got some very good friends making similar stuff with a similar attitude. So it's got the resources when it comes to chucking, you know, men, missiles, everything at a problem for longer than anyone else dare continue. I mean, you know, these are not people you take on lightly. We now have the situation where uh, it drove up all the commodity prices. It drove up the oil price, uh, the gold price. I think um, sort of from around about mid mid April, uh, sorry, mid mid uh, February last year, it went up from around about eighteen hundred bucks, I think, to two thousand and seventy in early March. Um, now uh, I'm digressing just very slightly, but please bear with me. Um, we now have. Uh, we're on the eve of a new um, uh, phase in this war. I mean, they're trying to send tanks in and all the rest of it. Why is this? They're sending these tanks in? Well, because they know that this is going to kick off again. As soon as the ground's flows, frozen, it then becomes suitable for tank warfare. The Russians um, are going to attack in their own timing. So what we're going to see in the coming weeks, and it's a matter of weeks, I think, rather than, you know, sort of, you know, months and quarters, uh, is we're going to see this this uh, whole thing escalating again. And so, um, you know, you should note that, uh, you know, the energy prices um, and also gold prices and things like that are going to be on the up due to this, if nothing else. So now, Meanwhile, while all this has been happening, there, there are um, a number of events which we should be aware of. The first is that I think it was back in about April, um, Sergei Glaziev, who you referred to, was appointed um, as head of 
um, a committee of the Eurasian Economic Union to consider the construction of a new trade settlement currency. Now, the, the purpose of that currency was to be acceptable to everybody who partook in it, and it was intended to be wider than just the Eurasian Economic Union membership. Um, and at that stage, he made a statement that, um, uh, you know, their initial thoughts were that it would be a basket of uh, the participating currencies and commodities that they traded in and gold as well. Uh, Glaziev's views gradually changed. I mean, I wrote an article after he came out with that saying this is completely impractical. And I produced a number of charts that showed that... Um, you know, the best way you could do this was literally just have a currency which is linked to gold, simply because if you look at the gold price of all these commodities, um, you know, basically the gold, you know, these commodities and gold just move sideways. I mean, OK, you know, at the very worst over the last um, uh, sort of 50, 60 years, um, the oil price has sort of doubled in gold. But I mean, that's nothing compared with what we've seen priced in, in dollars or sterling or euros. And the worst it's been is it's fallen to something like, um, uh, you know, sort of 60%, if you like, something like that. So, you know, there is volatility, but it's not actually that great. That's, that's the important thing. Indeed, throughout history, gold has always pretty much retained its purchasing power in a basket of commodities, goods, however you like to, like to call it. I mean, that's the purpose of money, to retain the purchasing power. And so that any fluctuations you have are actually in the individual goods, not in the currency itself or the money. Um, so that was the answer. And um, uh, Sergei Glazier then finally wrote this article, uh, which was published in uh, um, a business, a Moscow business uh, paper, where effectively, I mean, I could have written it. You could have written it, Andy. Um, you know, uh, Gold is the way to way forward. And bear in mind that this man was also suddenly um, uh, proposing the new Moscow Gold Exchange because they've been shut out of the LBMA. Now, I sort of thought about this. And I think, well, you know, the fact that they've been shut out of the LBMA actually doesn't matter at all because they've got no intention of selling any gold into London anyway. Um, you know, all they needed to do was provide an alternative to, um, the, you know, the existing mining uh, industry. And... Um, uh, that's basically what this new Moscow exchange was was doing. But, you know, you could see that with that and then with with um, Glaziev's article uh, on the 27th of December, he said, we want to get Russian gold mine output up from 300 tons a year to 500 tons a year. You know, they're doing what the Chinese have been doing. You know, they're chucking a whole load of money at getting this stuff out of the ground. Why? Well, you know, as Glaziev said in his, in, in, in his article, you know, the after, at the end of the day, if our currencies are going to work, we've got to go on to gold to protect ourselves from the collapse in the West. Now, I just want to go back to uh, around about June last year when there was the uh, St. Peter's, St. Petersburg International Forum. This... Um, if you like, it's rather like the World Economic Forum, but in Russian <laughs> and for rather a different uh, sort of attendee. About 81 um, uh, government uh, governments were represented at that, as long with I know, 14,000 attendees. And, you know, it was, a, it was a great thing. But Putin stood up in that and said, you know, why would you want to 
hold in your reserve dollars and euros, which at that time were losing purchasing power at the rate of 8% per annum. Um, and when, you know, you, this can be weaponized against you and be absolutely useless. And why should you have your gold reserves, you know, um, in, in, in London or in New York or, you know, Paris or whatever? I mean, it's just absolutely nonsense. Um, so he primed the whole thing, if you like. Then we saw, and this is it, this is very interesting. We saw the Saudis, um, you know, we could see that they were shifting towards the Russians. I mean, do you remember there was a, I think it was a G20 meeting back in Riyadh or something. And MBS uh, did a sort of high five to Putin. And it was fascinating watching the body language in that because they couldn't resist doing it, but they didn't want to show any more than that. Obviously, there were agreements going on behind the scenes and they knew that they needed to work together. Because Saudi's problem is we've told the Saudis and we've told everybody in the Gulf Cooperation Council, we do not want your fossil, fossil fuels. Take them away. We're not going to leave your customers in five, ten years time, whatever it is. So what do they do? Well, the answer is that the Qataris did a 27 year supply deal to China for natural gas. And then President Xi comes in and look at what happens there. I mean, compared with Biden visiting, which, um, you know, he was lucky if he saw MBS. I can't even remember if he did. I think if, if he did, he probably saw him for more than half an hour. Biden was coming in saying, you know, please pump a little more oil out. Yeah, well, you know, sure. You know, <laughs> what else are you got to tell us? <laughs> um, and uh, President Xi comes in and, you you know, the pictures of, uh, you know, the motorcade with, um, you know, horses riding alongside the full thing. The, you know, when the jets came in, you know, with all the colors of the Chinese flag. I mean, this was this was real stuff. It really was. And China agrees with Saudi Arabia that not only will they take the oil and the, the, the you know, the, the, the Saudis will accept payment in, in Yuan. China will also invest a similar amount back. I mean, I think the gap is something like about um, uh, $2 billion equivalent uh, in, in, in terms of trade in favour of, or balance of payments in, fa in, in, in favour of the Saudis. So, you know, you, out of about $60 billion trade, I mean, there's only about $2 billion, which is net settlement because of the, 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 you know, and this is the way China's doing it. They've got the savings to do it. They don't need to print the money to do it. They print credit, yes. I mean, all banks do that. And the banks are controlled by the Chinese. Um, but you can see that the strategy is actually quite simple. You know, we will trade with you. And where, um, you know, we buy your oil, then we will invest back in your country and help you build your infrastructure and all the rest of it. And we will build the communications. What we have out of all this is really a combination of things because the Saudis would not do this Yuan deal despite the Americans. I mean, they may wish to do that, but that's not practical. They would do it because they're being offered a better alternative. And that better alternative, I and mean, we've been looking at it and saying, well, of course, you know, the thing about the Shanghai Gold Exchange and the Futures Exchange is you can segue out of um, you know, a, a yuan contract or an oil contract into um, gold. And, you know, yeah, sure, I suppose you can. But actually, I think what's happening is that these trade imbalances, and this is after 
the money that's come in where you've got a deficit with someone. You know, you're investing into Saudi Arabia or wherever it might be. The balance is only two billion dollars equivalent. And that is going to be settled predominantly in gold or something that is tied to gold. That is the message we're getting now. And I think this is desperately important. In terms of how important, bear in mind this. We are a decaying, um, advanced world. And we are about 1.2 billion people. The Shanghai Cooperation Organization is 3.8 billion people. Their suppliers, including the whole of Africa, a further billion. You've got Latin America. Now, this is another interesting little development. If you look at, um, uh, you know, we've been hearing that Brazil and the Argentines and maybe a few others are talking about getting together and doing a common currency. You know, this is all a big joke, isn't it? Because these guys couldn't organize a currency for a, you know, if they tried. I mean, look at look at the result, you know. But it misses the point. What they're doing is they're coming up with a trade settlement currency which is acceptable to members of the SCO. And that will be gold-backed. It will be solid. It won't be like the Argentinian peso. This is very, very important. And here we are, 1.2 billion out of a global population of nearly 8 billion. Um, are we in the, you know, are we the power players in this? You've, you know, those 3.8 billion people in Asia are going to be rapidly industrializing. They're going to go through an industrial revolution with sound money in exactly the same way as Britain did from the introduction of the gold standard in 1817 through to the First World War. That is what the world now faces. So what it means is that gold is going to go back into being, if you like, the keystone to the global monetary system. And if we don't go with it, our currencies are dead, completely dead. I mean, think about the effect on the dollar. I mean, you know, for a start, this always happens. This always starts in the foreign exchanges. Now, the foreign exchanges aren't necessarily going to say sell dollars to buy euros or sell dollars to buy yen or whatever it might be. What we're talking about is we're looking at roughly 30 trillion of foreign owned financial assets and deposits in the banking system, which will be losing money the longer they stay in dollars. What are they going to do? They're going to get out. Imagine the impact of that 30 trillion dollars trying to get out of the US dollar. This, I mean, a lot of it will be collapsing um, uh, uh, share prices, for example, because uh, I think the portfolio element of this is about 13, 12, 13 trillion dollars. So this is significant. It also creates enormous problems for the US government because they've been relying on foreigners to fund the debt. Foreigners turned sellers at the time when, the, you know, heading into recession. Um, the idea that the budget deficit is under control, forget it, it's going to get worse, and the foreigners are going to be selling uh, treasuries at the same time. I mean, this is this is the worst currency nightmare you could possibly imagine facing the Americans. And in terms of timing on this, I think it's, you know, it's tied, I think, to what's happening in, in the Ukraine, because I just put myself in, in Putin's shoes, and I can see that the easiest way to shut the Americans down is to progress these plans very rapidly. So, 
he will send in his tanks, whatever it is. He will try and uh, uh, reclaim the Donbass and so on. And he will succeed. He will succeed. I, of that, I have no doubt at all, because he has regrouped. He's changed his leadership, learned lessons. He knows what he's doing. He's also got superior missile technology, I mean, which hasn't yet really been deployed. This is going to be nasty. It really is going to be nasty. But the way to stop the West from really backing up the Ukrainians with, you know, you know, missiles and all the rest of it is actually to bankrupt those nations. And that, I think, is what he's going to do. So I think that this new phase in the Ukraine situation gives us the timing for gold. Yeah, I mean, this is fascinating. This is the kind of detail we can't get anywhere else. Now, look, uh, Alistair, the scale, I mean, what's telling me here, the scale, the potential scale of this upcoming de-dollarization, the velocity is not priced into the dollar or commodities. Now, every bank I speak to is already, this aside, is already expecting 2023 to be a commodity super cycle with record high um, commodity prices. I mean, good God, add gold into this picture. I mean, silver, for example. I mean, so silver is a commodity. And we're talking about all-time high prices in all commodities. Where, where does that place silver? But I think, but I mean, to me, add in gold and, and you what you've just talked about, all of these pieces fit together. And on the second, on the first trading day of 2023, Sparebank announces they are digitizing, putting on the, on the blockchain, digital gold. But it's physical gold that's been digitized and it's a trustless blockchain. You know that every single gram there. This is the, this is the weaponized missile. It is. And it's how do you employ this? And you could literally gram for gram price every single commodity on the planet Earth. The velocity, to me, Alistair, is inconceivable. Yeah. I mean, your point about Sverbank, I think, is 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 um, absolutely to the point, because they will know what Glaziev is, is intending. So this is, if you like, a forerunner. It's, it's you know, they're, they're, they're um, you know, sort of trading ahead of, <laughs> ahead of uh, the developments. I think it's a very clear signal that, um, you know, everything is going in that direction. And... Um, you know, the cons, I mean, all fiat currencies come to an end. And um, the last people to recognize it are generally the people who use the fiat currency for their day to day transactions. And, you know, when we talk to our American friends, they don't see this at all. I mean, they really don't. I mean, very, a few, a few might, but the vast majority. And we're talking about some pretty sophisticated financial brains, too. They don't see it. They really don't see it. It always starts in the foreign exchanges. And then, I mean, it's the, it's the, it's the, uh, Ludwig von Mises classic situation leading to the currency collapse with what he called the crack up boom. Um, you know, that last moment when suddenly, um, you know, people on the street realize that what's going on is not prices rising, but their currency collapsing. So what do they do? Just get the hell out of it as quickly as you can for anything. Even if you don't need to buy it, you know, just dump the currency. You're not buying things. You're just getting rid of the currency, getting rid of any liquidity, which you can, because you know what's going to happen to it. it it's the currency that is collapsing, not prices that are rising. 
The moment the general public understands that, then there is no way back for the currency. It's as simple as that. And that's um, the first stage in this always is foreign selling, always foreign selling. Yes, I was also um, thinking more on this side of the pond now. Um, I was also fascinated by your take on the do or die Ukraine conflict. Really, Germany's that really got me thinking. I hadn't thought about this. Germany's role really um, and their interests, as you pointed out, lie more in line with the Asian Egmonts and and we're looking at the potential collapse of the EU here. Can, please, come on, expend us, give us some information here, that, because certainly you, you're, you're onto something which I hadn't really thought about. Well, um, it's, I mean, the EU is a dodgy thing anyway. So, um, you know, I think we should be glad to be out of it. I know there are lots of <laughs> Remainers running around thinking, you know, we, we've got to get, we've got to get us back in somehow. But actually, it's a very dodgy. It really is. I mean, the whole thing is just just complete nonsense. Um, the, I think the thing we need to understand about um, NATO is that um, in the words of Lord Ismay, who was the first uh, secretary general of NATO, he said uh, the objective of NATO is to keep the Americans in, the Russians out and the Germans down. <laughs> and so we've been suppressing the Germans uh, really since 1948, which I think was the year NATO was founded. And um, it is desperately important to America that Germany remains um, on this side, if you like, of where they think the, you know, the, the democratic curtain, if I can put it that, it is. Um, but if you, if you look at it from, from Germany's point of view, uh, in fact, Germany is an economy um, has enormous potential to gain from what the Shanghai Cooperation Organization is doing. I mean, they are um, the producer of high technology, um, uh, you know, electrical and mechanical goods, um, the sort of machines which which are going to be needed, you know, things and also, you know, all the civil engineering stuff and all the rest of it. I mean, the Mittelstand is so strong as an entity. You have a production-based economy, which actually is, um, if you like, it's a, it's, you know, it's, it's a square peg in the round hole of the EU, which is increasingly financialized, as we are and as the Americans are. They actually are far more naturally part of that Shanghai cooperation um, bit. And interestingly, I suspect that um, Scholz, I mean, I think he realizes this and I think he realizes the dilemma that he's got. And that is he doesn't actually want to shut the gate on Russia. Um, and I think that was part of the reason why he was very reluctant to send Leopard 2 tanks and to authorize, you know, others who had who had bought these under contract um, to do the same. This was sort of put out, and I think there is something in it. It was put out as the idea that you don't want to see the Nazis back there with their tanks and all the rest of it, you know, sort of, well, 70 years after <laughs> after the last effort. Um, but I think a lot of it is that um, Germany realises that, uh, you know, this whole situation is extremely fragile and she needs to keep her options open. Furthermore, um, uh, the intelligence that we get is that the Americans might have considered doing a deal with Moscow if it was just a question of 
negotiating over the Ukraine. But the one thing which they would not be able to agree on is NATO. And NATO is there to keep Germany down. This is the whole point. So um, what the Americans were not prepared to see was, um, if you like, the Chinese and Russian um, uh, hegemons running from Vladivostok all the way to Karanya. You know, I mean, this is, you know, this, this, as far as they were concerned, was an absolute no-no. So that's what they're fighting to defend, and that's what they're roping us into do, doing. And I mean, why we're falling for it? I mean, you know, I, this is very, this is not good. It really is not good. Um, but, and I think, I mean, France is also in a, you know, I mean, France is in a sort of wishy-washy position, really. Yeah, you know, Macron wanted to try and say, well, you know, I can, I can lead the negotiations and all the rest of it. He was doing all this sort of French flummery, if you like, over the whole thing. But the key to it is Germany. The key to it is Germany. I mean, I, um, the SCO would be a lot more powerful with Germany on its side of the fence. And the Americans are determined to prevent that. And I think this is why they came out of Afghanistan to defend that situation, to defend the Western European interest. This is hugely interesting, <clears throat> hugely interesting. And I think it was it was I think last Thursday, I think in a really angry rant, uh, the Ukraine defense minister, I can't pronounce it, Alexei Regzinov or whatever it is. Uh, he, he came out in this rant and completely verified, completely underscored that we are carrying out a NATO mission today without shedding their blood. I mean, good God. I mean, so, so you've got that admission. But then what really funny how these pieces all come together. And it's like, I never realized that Israel um, when they try to negotiate a peace settlement within a month of the of the conflict, it's not a war yet because if it was a war, we'd know it um, that this conflict started. And this is where it really pees me off because Germany, as you say, and France were very pragmatic about yes, and in, and all Russia was asking for was look. An agreement not for, for, for Ukraine not to, they can keep arms, but an agreement never to join NATO. I mean, goodness me. I mean, this was a, a doable deal. And what happened, and this is what pees me off, is that Boris Johnson turned up physically and scuppered that entire deal. And I think Boris has blood on his hands. And I'm really, really, I mean, I had support for him along for many years and that completely blew that. But, this is this was solvable in the early days. So clearly, who's driving this? It's clear which country is driving this, um, Alistair. I, I, it's, it, it's, it's not just Boris. Um, it, it, I think the American um, neocons are very much behind this. Um, yeah, that's 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 how I see it. Um, and all the evidence, I think, points that way. I mean, the, the, the journalist Pepe Escobar, whose who's intelligence um, contacts are second to none, really, as far as, so far as I'm aware. Um, you know, he sees it that it's it it is it is the neocons who are really driving this, the Newlands of of, of this world. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, God help us. <laughs> That they're almost sort of rather like the sort of Doctor Strange love types over there, you know, who 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 seem to be calling the shots. I mean, you know, we want war. 
that's what that's what they're doing. And I, to, to my mind, um, I think I, I have an optimistic view on this, and that is that the whole of our system is completely rotten. As a society, the West is falling apart. I mean, all this woke stuff and all the rest of it, and you mm. know, with politicians tying themselves up in knots. This is the end of a road, in a sense. And um, the debasement of currencies is an accelerating issue. We're destroying ourselves. We're not going anywhere. We're not achieving anything. So, you know, this has really got to come to an end. And if it comes to an end with a large part of the world returning to the values which we uh, really value, like, like um, you know, sound money, gold and so on and so forth as being the backbone for, for credit then this is good. This is good because it will force us to stop doing what we're doing. We will have no option. And I think the great thing is that you can't just nuke someone because um, you don't like their financial <laughs> attitudes. You know, you nuke them as, a, as, a, as an act of physical war, not financial war. Though I think reintroducing gold is the equivalent of a nuclear war <laughs> against the fiat currencies. And good riddance to them as far as, you know, that's that's my view. So I actually take some, uh, you know, my takeaway from this is actually really very, very positive, but it's going to be rough, very rough. Um, I mean, think about how, um, uh, you know, how long is it going to be before the, the whole of the um, Westminster and Whitehall establishment, the whole of the Washington establishment um, kicks out this Keynesian rubbish and actually goes back to classical economics. That's really what we're talking about in theoretical terms. And this is going to be, you know, you're going to have to have people who just take a grip of the situation to stop it deteriorating so that the currencies are completely valueless. I mean, the answer is you use the currencies as a means of distributing a better currency, a currency which is actually backed by something tangible, and that is gold. Um, that is the that will be the last function of dollars, euros, pounds, and it's just so sad that we've got what have we got three hundred tons or something? You know, we've sold most of ours at something like two hundred and seventy-five bucks. <laughs> oh dear, it's enough to make you weep, isn't it? And America, uh, it's very likely that the eight thousand three hundred tons they've got is is really likely compromised, rehypothecated. I mean, we know that because of the German situation where why would you not allow them to come and inspect the vaults? Why would you not allow them to have their 300 tonnes? I mean, we can put stuff, you know, you can put, and as you know, you can put 20, 25 tonnes on a plane uh, and you could have done it in a week. But no, it wasn't, it was originally going to be seven years. But, but I think, um, I think what you're talking about here is the smart money is already onto this. And Alistair, that brings us on to probably the last thing to, to talk about today is the BIS going net long gold. And, you know, if you remember, and of course you remember, because you, you were all over this with us, the BIS commenced 2022 trading with over 500 tonnes of swaps leases on their books. Uh, and again, you were there with us on this. When they eventually, they were telegraphing that they were going to square these derivative bets when they imposed these NSFR uh, conditions on the liquidity provides, providing the over-the-counter spot market liquidity. And bang on, year-end, zero. Any surprises there? Because they, if, and, and this is the other thing, 
Who are these guys trying to call tops here? Give your head a shake. If the central bank of central banks is net, is net long gold, if we're seeing more gold being bought by central banks than since Nixon closed the gold window 50 years ago, what the hell are people talking about trying to call the top on gold? Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, from a central banker's point of view, the answer is quite simple. Um, you know, gold goes along like that and your currency goes down. So what do you do? You print currency to buy gold. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's the simplest thing to work out in the world. But, um, you know, the point about swaps and leases and so on is interesting because, uh, you know, if we go back to 2002, Frank Venoroso stood up at a conference in Lima and said that he had worked out that something between 10,000 and 14,000 tons of gold were out on lease. And I think he described it as being around the necks of women in India and China. Well, it, no, it wasn't China then, but certainly <laughs> India. Um, and, uh, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, at that time, I mean, 14,000 tons was half the total declared um, central bank reserves of gold, which was around about 28,000 tons. Now we're up to, what, 35, 36 or something. Hmm. Um, now, I just wonder how much uh, is actually out on lease still or swapped still. In other words, from the point of view of, you know, if, if let's say that the declared total is 36,000 tonnes, some of that is double counted. You know, there are two owners to it. And uh, if there is a significant amount of it, then I think there are going to be some central banks which are going to be very embarrassed uh, and uh, I suspect that those are going to be central banks in the West. I can see a lot of the minor ones. I mean, I, I, um, with the help of a journalist from the Times, I, th I think it was the Times, I uncovered um, a situation in Finland, which was, which was quite fascinating, because they had something like 60-odd tonnes stored at the Bank of England. And, um, uh, you know, the woman who is responsible with the central bank for this particular department, in her blog in Finnish, boasted that, um, you know, they'd been, you know, half of it was out on lease and they were earning good money on it. And um, anyway, I got a, a Finnish friend to translate this. <laughs> and, you know, when I went public on it, it was immediately withdrawn. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, it's ab absolutely fascinating. Uh, um, I, mean, I mean, there are going to be a lot of Western central banks, I think, who say that they've got so much gold, but actually when it comes to it, they don't actually own it. <laughs> They're owed it. Uh, so this is going to be, I mean, it's going to be a voyage of discovery, uh, a very interesting voyage of discovery, I think, this this um, uh, SCO, move into gold. And the BIS, as you, quite, as you say, clearly signalling that they don't want to be short of this stuff at all. They want to have an even to a long book, and that's where they are. I think, as you say, you know, this one only has to look at the the size of this issue that was not on the table. Even some of the mainstream haven't still haven't caught on to this, but it really hasn't been in most people's awareness. And but but what gets me is the the size of this, the velocity of this. And people talk about, oh, well, the dollar, I mean, you know, give it, be 10, 15 years before the dollar it loses any kind of, hang on a minute. Look, the dollar, the velocity of this is mega and it, and it really will accelerate, especially now we've, we've seen Russia digitizing gold into gram, 
grams, so you can price commodities in grams. And, and we have other information that says that furthermore, other people have also adopted this, this uh, process. And why wouldn't you? Because it's simply a question of buying the gold physically or taking physical gold you own, putting it on the blockchain and then using it as a currency. So it becomes the currency and it's the only currency, as you rightly say, it can be the only currency that can really be the benchmark for a physical product, for a uh, for a commodity, yeah. And there we are, here we are. You know, uh, in 2023, Spare Bank kicking the ball off. As you say, they're in the know. It's happening, and I think people need to give their head a shake and say, "Well, I think as Robert Kiyosaki said, uh, Alistair, how much physical do you own?" That's the only thing he said. He kept saying. But how much physical do you own? And I'm sure that is that is your mantra too. Oh, oh, completely. I mean, there's no point in having paper. And the other thing which I, I always insist, and this this was really first <laughs> uh, indicated to me by uh, my colleague James Turk. You know, he said he said he said uh, you don't invest in gold. Um, it's you hoard it. It's it's money which you will spend. It's not something to, to, to look at it from the point of view that, you know, I bought it at 1600 and it's now 1873. No, no, that's not the way to look at it at all. I mean, if you want to play that game, go and buy a mining stock or, <laughs> you know, play the paper yeah, market or yeah, something like that. Absolutely. But, um, you know, but this is actually about protecting yourself against some very, very wild and big forces, far bigger than any of us. And um, if you don't protect yourself, what we're looking at is the complete collapse, potentially the complete collapse of the fiat currency system and everything that depends on it. I mean, how are you going to price, um, I mean, even mining shares in, in fiat currency that's collapsing? I mean, you know, if remove the fiat currency, you've got no price, basically. I mean, you might say it's infinite or something or close to it, in, you know, in Venezuela and whatever, or, you know, the dollar goes that way. But, I mean, the point is that, the, 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 you know, in these collapses, there is a hierarchy of of assets which you need to own. The first is real money. That's the main thing. And that's gold, silver, copper coin. I mean, I'm going way back. Yes, you know, something more, tangible. More, yeah, something tangible. Yeah, with no counterparty risk. As great J.P. Morgan, the original John Pierpont Morgan, said um, in testimony to Congress in 1912, he said, gold is money and the rest is credit. And he's dead right. And that's it. You don't want the credit. You know, in this sort of collapse, you don't want to have um, to have to rely on someone else's promise to pay you, which is actually what credit is. That's counterparty risk. You don't want it. You want to have the physical stuff. Then, I mean, if you go back to um, uh, what we saw in uh, the uh, German inflation in 1923, um, the, I mean, there were stories about about uh, uh, American students um, in in Berlin um, out of the daddy's allowance. They were able to buy literally streets of houses, you know, because and that was what happened to property prices in that sort of scenario. Whereas here we are with we, we think of property as being an inflation hedge. Well, sure. But I mean, and um, also the great Austrian um, uh, uh, writer, um, uh, Stefan Zweig, recounted at that time that you could buy um, a, a six bedroom house in a swanky part of Berlin for a uh, hundred dollars. 
You know, hundred dollars at that time was convertible into twenty point six seven, or at the rate of twenty point six seven to the ounce of gold. So it's just a bit less than five ounces of gold bought you a house to die for. But I mean, you know, and and rental property basically went valueless. Why? Because the cost of maintaining it was higher than the value of the property. You know, so you get this idea that there is an escape from this sort of currency collapse. Uh, which is not owning physical gold or physical silver, um, is completely wrong. It's, it's bananas. There's only one way out of it, and that is to protect yourself by just getting completely out of the fiat system and everything that depends on it. And that, I think, is the big, big message that we're getting from Russia. Um, uh, you know, I mean, very senior people are on this, and uh, they're all saying the same thing, and it's becoming more and more clear. And your point about Sverbank doing this digitization of gold, they're front-running it. I mean, I th- it's as simple as that. So, so we've been told. We've been told. Yeah, do you know what? Physical, physical, physical. And, oh, please pass my um, regards on to James Turk. Um, what a, what a, what a, he's a true gentleman and, um, have a lot of respect for, for James and oh. all he's achieved. So. He's, he's, he's great. He really is a great guy with enormous knowledge. Um, and, uh, I know. I had, you know, I had a lovely lunch with him one day and, uh, and I, I just, that lunch could have lasted the rest of the day. <laughs> but Alistair, thank you so much for joining us. And we, we've only covered, some of what I was hoping to talk to you about and, and, and delve into to, to the wonderful mind you have there. Um, but perhaps you'll join us again soon, won't you? Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. Right. And, you know, particularly when you're so nice to me. I mean, you, I'll always come back. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Alistair. Thank you very thank much you. for you. taking thank the time you. to join us today. It was very much my pleasure. Well, thank you so much, Andrew McGuire and Alistair McLeod, for another. I knew it would be a fascinating discussion. And remember, buy physical and make sure it's one-to-one and understand the difference between what Andy affectionately calls the casino paper gold and silver markets and the actual physical gold and silver markets. They're not the same. Don't be fooled. And there you have it. That's all we have for you today on another episode of Live from the Vault. Now, I'd like to ask you to please keep help spreading the word about this channel by hitting that like button, sharing it, and subscribe to the channel. And if you want to be notified as each episode goes live, just click on that little bell there, and we'll we'll send you those episodes as they go live. And with that, we'll see you next time right here on Live from the Vault. We'll see you then.